once again we caution you. These stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. You see this? Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? Hey, stop. Put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck, a gomja bar. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting a duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. Your awareness may be powerful enough to control your instincts. Your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. If you do so, you die. Material Podcast. I'm Tom Carnell. I'm Heather Buckley. And I'm Langley West. And tonight we are, or today I should today. say, we are here for episode 101. 101. Which is exciting. Um, and we're going to discuss the career and films of David Lynch. Never uh, heard. What's you that? Never, you never heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, we always begin here, I guess. Um, are we fans? Of his tornado-like haircut. <laughs> his haircut looks here. like a tornado. Yeah, it does. Him and Conan O'Brien. All that <laughs> I'm a fan of David Lynch. Okay. Uh-huh. I there- think he's created something that is Lynchian. And sometimes that's hard to put your finger on what he's doing. Because so many people claim to Lynchian. Mm-hmm. And I feel fall short. I am a fan of the fact that he is a man who finds beauty in the grotesque. I am a fan of, not to sound very hipster-like, but I am a fan of his earlier work uh-huh. and not his later work. Man. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm a huge uh, David Lynch fan. I've sung the praises of David Lynch for many years, ever since I was a wee lad, a in, wee lad. in school. Uh, this is going to surprise no one. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. In fact, I've, I have said of David Lynch that I think that his motto is, if you can't dazzle him with brilliance, baffle him with bullshit. I, and, and I, and I get where that's coming from. I, I see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't map that to anything like well, a movie, Blue well, Velvet or, or his movies. So. Well, okay. he, I, I, I get, I get where Tom's coming from, but, but where I disagree is that. If he, if I thought that David Lynch was ingenuous at all, it didn't really. Oh no, I it, think that's it, straight up him. Yeah, it, his it, films it, are straight up entirely. Him. So, so therefore, it's not bullshit. It's him, uh, and he is. But I do think that there are tricks that can be employed, writing wise and and directing wise, that muddy the water. Um, if you have a piece of plot that get, is a little weird and you know it's a little weird and it's a little difficult to ha- to 
for the audience to swallow. Right. If you muddy that water a bit, they're so con they can be so confused by what the fuck is this that they they completely gloss over that weird bit of, bit of fuzzy logic. And I think he does that a lot. I do think he's br brilliant in the fact that he's he's willing to go there. You know sure. what I mean? And it is such an expression. Although it's ironic that most of his more successful films are films where he wasn't in control. Things like Straight Story and Elephant Man and even Dune. Um, so I know mean, I get it when people go, "I'm a big David Lynch fan." It just goes, it just buzzes right by me. Sure, like people, like Blue, your 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 reverence, Heather, for Blue Velvet. I I I'm a diabetic talking about chocolate at that point. I have it just goes right by me. I go, I don't see that at all. But you know, what I, do you see? I see a very confused narrative. Um, populated by some really brilliant performances juxtaposed with some really uh, novice level. I think Kyle McLaughlin is way out of his element, which is kind of the point, I think, of, of that particular Sure, yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be. Yeah. But when it comes down to, like, him, the look on his face is not, what does this new plot develop? It's more like, what's a gaffer do? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, he looks genuinely... But, but again... Um, I understand when people say that they they love the guy. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's important first and foremost to recognize that David Lynch is before anything else uh, an artist. Agree. More of an artist, a, I'd say, than a filmmaker. Yeah. And and I would I would get in there is that the dogged need for narrative and narrative structure and plot mm -hmm. is something that would that. I think is unnecessary in a lot of cinema. And David Lynch comes out of a more avant-garde background and the avant-garde, a lot of them stood by is that this uh, cinema's focus on trying to be like theater captured by a camera mm -hmm. has brought back the actual aesthetics of what cinema could actually be because it's like, where's the plot? Where's the story? And I think Lynch finds a place in a commercial world to allow avant-garde and art to sort of sort of seep in mm -hmm. and this translate hypnotic hypnotic method. So when I watch when I watch anything, my focus is not on is that plot really really tight because I think that's sort of like to me it's like that's almost like the bottom of the enjoyment of cinema story. Yeah, we've oh, that, that we've hurts. we've <laughs> talked well we've we talked about this before. I don't remember which episode, and and that came up that Heather was was basically those things were not as important as mm -hmm. what you were actually what, what you were experiencing. Oh, yeah, and oh, what I, you were I agree. Seeing. I think there are certain things like I don't go to enter the void for story. I go there because it's going to be very cool and visuals and right. that kind of thing. I think, and, and I, I get that. And I think if you go if you go similarly similar, similarly armed <laughs> to uh, a David Lynch film, I think you'll you'll do okay. Yeah, it's weird. It's almost like sub not style over substance or even style as substance. It's but but it's it's ironic that where Lynch goes, my I kind of shut down. But if you look at someone like Tarsem, which is Tarsem Singh, which is right. completely um, style over substance. I love what that guy. A lot of the, I mean, if we think about all his stories, a lot of them are are sort of character sketches mm -hmm. in strange, in the strange, confusing world, and it's. And then I think the constructs of a lot of the the stuff that I like have more of a noir 
feel, but the focus more on the nightmare characters and scenarios that kind of twist. There's a part in Ulysses that the they were talking about revelry and getting drunk, and then the, almost like the text itself starts to be intoxicated and starts to be very weird to read. Mm-hmm. And it seems that's what's happening. So sort of tell like a straight noir story or or some sort of something strange and surreal. It just seems to me that he's figured out a way through this kind of like NyQuil acting approach and the way that he lights and the way that people react to stuff that the the nightmare scenario is affecting the text and the acting and the way that the movie is shot. It, it's like a like a movie version, like House of Leaves, right? The book House of Leaves, right? If you've ever read it, it it, it kind of been. I, I I I do like the fact that he's able to um. Uh, on his on his films, there's like a, a mo- moments where the wheels slip a little. They just they don't slip a lot where you're now you're careening out of control. They slip just enough. It, it kind of happens in Jacob's Ladder once in a while where they, it slips just enough where you kind of you don't really catch it, but it is jarring and it f- makes you feel weird. Maybe that's it. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think David Lynch I, makes me feel weird. I think yeah, and I think that that's part of those aspects of the production are are weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was gonna say you know I I. I think it's important to look at his stuff more like, more like a poem, more that, that mm-hmm. and, and less like a book. You know, it's it's an experience. Right. It's not so much a story. Because like when I first saw um, Blue Velvet, it was on its, you know, film geeky initial release in the theater. But but I remember f- become maybe leaving that in Wild at Heart, leaving the theater frustrated because I. I went with the expectation that I was going to be told a story. Right. And when when I start to get these weird side things and these blatant caricatures and stuff, I, I like I really hated Wild at Heart. I upon yeah. initial viewing, I, I think really... your your hatred of Wild at Heart is well documented <laughs> on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, there's no denying that there's a solid filmmaker there. You know, when you yeah. look at the, his stuff, that's more straight up. It's 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 kind of like. Kind of like listening to Zappa in that if you're coming yeah. for a three-minute pop hit, yeah, you're not gonna that you're not going to be happy. I would also argue it's not a trick. That kind of acting, that technique, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, so many things are called Lynchian, and yet they fail to do what David Lynch's films do. You know, so it's a certain sort of – it's like casting, acting. I mean, I've not read any extras about how he – preps his actors or how they know to sort of give this sort of consistent, bewildered, broad, but not character performance. Because William Defoe is funny, but then he stops being funny and becomes very scary. Mm-hmm. And they're right. always sort of writing that line and it never becomes sort of big like an like Anne Ash character, like a Bruce Campbell character, is that the the bigness and the strangeness becomes scarier and scarier and scarier and almost as cosmic in a sense. It's like Nick Cage in Wild at Heart. That that is such a caricature sort of portrayal, but he's so committed to it that you kind of go, "All right, you kind of yeah, you, you, you sign on." Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It, well, and if you look at his early uh, cast folk, mm-hmm. um, in particular, Jack. Now I can't think of his name. Nance. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jack Nance, um, and who, who, who went through. 
you know, several Lynch projects. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy was a weird guy in yeah. in real life. Well, you it, know? That, have you have you seen the documentary? Uh, I don't know Jack. No. Yes. Oh my God, it's so good. And it's like you you never realized how weird this dude was just watching the films and and you know because you figure oh, oh the Jack actor. Nance character yeah, 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 Jack yeah. Nance well that, that he's one of those guys you, as a filmmaker you find and you go oh we got to get this guy in this yeah we? exactly yeah yeah um but yeah and Lynn... he, he he has a scene in Wild and Hard like does does your dog bite yes and there's such dread and fear in this strange way they have them relay their dialogue. Wow! Yeah, it's it's he's he's a to me it's so dude. threatening. Is that because every element of Blue Velvet, though it's beautiful, it's still incredibly it's a threatening world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that constant. That is one thing about Lynch is he's really good at regardless of what the story is, he's really good at at maintaining this constant droning ominous. It's dread. Dread that's yeah. right. underlying Some everything. shit is going to go down. Yeah. I mean, like, it could be, you know, uh, the most benign scene. But you know, watching that scene, even though he hasn't shown us, although sometimes he does, that just beneath the surface, just beneath those people's feet, there are worms and bugs yeah. and things that are just yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. constantly undermining this world. And when I find it in other films, for example... Osgood Perkins's films. One is Blackmore's Daughter, also known as February, when I saw it on the Film Fest cycle, and The Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. One thing I was struck by it was that it has a very Lynchian feel to it. it mm-hmm. Because it's mostly because it's trying to create this this hypnotic kind of NyQuil state, this wake this waking nightmarish sleep uh, sleep. But it's also the sound designs of the film. The sound design remind me of a lot of the droning in Exorcist Three, right. but then also the droning that you hear in a movie like Lost Highway. And in Osgood's films, is that he just does not take his finger off that sound design. That that is an escalating dread upon dread upon dread. And I think a key to a lot of the Lynch films, as we discussed or something that's Lynchian, I think they're picking up on this idea of this tonal feeling of dread, but dread not through subtlety, dread through these through these interest through filmic techniques. Two films that come to mind on that, one very much so is the Babadook. Sure. There, there's that, that sort of hazy, staticky feel to it. Mm-hmm. And talking about sound design, um, what's uh, the others? Uh, oh, not yeah, in yeah. the same drony kind of way, but the same use of sound to be unnerving in a way, in, in a sort of uh, sound plays a huge part in Lynch's films. The others in with headphones mm. is fucking amazing. It's, it really is. And um, I, as a, as a viewer of the cinema and also as a music fan, I'm very affected by sort of this drony, hypnotic state that some films uh, could put me in. Mm-hmm. There is some feedback on Osgood's films that people like his first one and not his second one. And for me, the first and second, my focus was on on this this poetic music landscape that he's creating with acting and imagery and, and film. The actual, the actual texture of the cinematic medium. Right, right. And I'm very affected by that, which is probably why I'm less affected by actual narrative on, a, on occasion, which would be the difference for me why 
I liked, it's like I really liked the nice guys, but his stuff before just had too much plot and I didn't care. I was more interested in in watching character performances. I agree. So am I, am I right in it? And I did not, <clears throat> I did not uh, do any homework for this because I, I watch, I, I, I've read in the past. You're good. Life yeah. is cinema. You don't need am, any research. Am I correct in that his first uh, uh, film, you know, I, I say with air quotes, is Three Men Getting Sick? Is that correct? Six Men Getting Sick. Six Men. Holy in crap. In 66. Was... But before that, a couple of fun facts. He's an Eagle Scout? Yeah. Uh, and that's huge. That plays. That's a. That's not yeah. into Dave. Yeah, because he, that's he's firmly entrenched in the in the norm. Yeah, um, he's a big coffee drinker. Has his own line of coffee. He's big into TM. Yes, transcendental big... meditation. Yeah, which comes into play when we get to two thousand six, which we'll talk about. Um, here's and, this was kind of weird. An avid smoker. Avid smoker. So him and Frank Zappa. The the illusion there is mm-hmm. is maintains weight um when in college he roomed with peter wolf the former lead singer from jay giles right um but he lynch kicked him out because he thought wolf was too weird (laughs) (laughs) so i think i think that that's important i think that a lot of you know when we when we say david lynch people automatically are like oh he's so fucking weird he's the guy that sits on a bus stop with a cow you see this he was trying to promote a film, and he sat out for a week on a bus stop with a cow, just sitting there <laughs> drinking coffee and smoking. Don't you feel if you're so, if you're so, because I mean, he's a weird sort of quarry because he's sort of like a normal Walmart kind of every American guy. Mm-hmm. There, there seems to be sort of like a distance observation that he has of the world and it being sort of uh, threatening. But threatening who to what sort of normalcy? Because it's threatening. Does he sort of hold back as a person mm-hmm. because of the observations he sees? Because again, if like if that's sort of your world, your your lens to the world, you wouldn't really engage. Mm-hmm. He's observing the world from under the giant brim of his cap. <laughs> but you got to figure again, Eagle Scout. I don't know where he was born, but I'm imagining it wasn't any any place. I, I think he's from Montana or yeah, someplace like that. That makes sense. But the idea of here's this wide-eyed kid from whatever suddenly dropped into the capital A art world. You know yeah. what I mean? And and the film world. Um, of, yeah, it would be like this is a weird place. And and well, he wound and, up. Was it? Didn't he wind up in? Uh, uh, was it Pittsburgh? Is that? I don't know. Is that, that right? No, I don't know. It, it, where 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 he was going to art school, and and for David Lynch fans who are screaming at me right now, no, it's not Pittsburgh. It's someplace like that. All right, God damn it. It's and it's it's an industrial city, and he's surrounded by factories and belching smoke and things that are very different from the big sky country uh, that where he grew up. Um, and all of that got poured into... Well, before we start talking about Eraserhead, there's a couple other things to talk about. Well, I do want to say that uh, he served as an usher at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. Mm. So that that is, that ties into what we're talking about because you don't just get that gig. You get that gig because you're, you're, you've done something exemplary, like right. Eagle Scout, or more than that. Right, right. So it, that further bolsters the idea well, that here's this... 
fairly this normal kid that suddenly became all of this normalcy most is dreaded pointing, of things the artist right all this normalcy is pointing to one very important thing this man is quintessentially american yeah it, it's like you don't see a lot of um you don't see a lot of while while you're getting a lot of uh, weirdness from him you don't see a lot of influences from other places it's it's all of his stuff is 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 uh it, it, to me insular it's it's like you know it's it's, it's why well, be willing to bet he he's seen his fair share of french cinema oh absolutely because Absol- you can see there are there are little echoes of that like particularly in elephant man and the use of black and white well and 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 you know you could argue german expressionism yeah, and Razorhead yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and and so on and so <laughs> forth but that's i mean that's all filtered you know through film school sure i want to talk about a short film that he did that i think is called the grandmother the grandmother 1970 have you seen this no oh my god <laughs> dude it is, it's jaw dropping. It's great. Okay. It, it's really great, and it's, and it's, it's one of the few times where I found just an image frightening. Hmm. You know, not not really connected to what was going on, but just the image of this lady, and she's in stark. Uh, it was a color film, but 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 she's painted in this kind of black and white motif, and. Uh, there's slimy stuff and it's just it's it's it bugged the shit out of me i love that there's slimy there's stuff slimy and, shit oh that's funny well yeah i hear you no in, i haven't in, seen it you know and, is and, it available on youtube and all that other nonsense i'm sure you can find it um it's uh, <laughs> um it's it's also uh a it occurs to me while saying that that you know we have this term lynchian and he's one of the few guys that have been able to pull that off. Hitchcockian. Well, you, you got you yeah. know, Hitchcock yeah. created something that people well, call Hitchcockian. Lovecraft created something called Lovecraftian. Right, right, right. Know, and and so it's it's cool that we have. A I'm wondering to how to. far apart would on the shelf would we do we set or were you want to using those terms, Lynchian and Cronenbergian. Um, how far apart on the shelf? I mean, I think because you know I mean? it seems like here's a, a, a an auteur filmmaker making films they want to make because they I mean wanna... they're in my same velvet Valentine's Day box that's shaped like a heart. <laughs> sure, of well, that I love, yeah. so they're very close on the shelf. But I think they're very different as filmmakers. Cronenberg uh, has sort of a clinical view and uh, disgusted by the body. I feel that we don't really have. Lynch's idea of any sort of body horror. I mean, people are very well covered up in, in, in the film. The sexuality is a bit is a bit rough, but it does, says something not about flesh. And his style is much more uh, sumptuous. Well, I will say, like, if you look at Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet, that she's not an ideal. She's not, you know, she, her, she's got the little belly fat on her, and she's got a little you know, bounce to her butt and that kind of thing. So it's not like this idealized uh, See, and body there, image. And therein lies the problem because you and I obviously have different ideas of what is ideal, sir. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, normally in a film, um, she so would have a six-pack and... Well, no, there's there's the ideal. There's what Hollywood or what through Hollywood system has typically said is beautiful. 
So I would not use the word ideal in that in that in that situation. We are groomed as as consumers of cinema to go. This is what a pretty girl looks like when oh, sure. I go to the theater and watch it. And I think that's what you're saying. And someone like Isabel Rossellini and a lot of actresses would say that beauty. If you go to any European cinema, high art cinema, sure, sure. she that is beautiful. That is. Now- Fellini beautiful. And what I'm saying European beauty about it. And what I'm saying is the sort of Lynch's embracement of the normality of that kind of body type, as opposed to Cronenberg, who is sort of repulsed by all things physical and and anatomical. I, I'd say that, that David Lynch well, does he cast a typical type of beautiful, you know, Hollywood beautiful girls in his films? I don't think he does. Who? Uh Cronenberg. Like, I think of Deborah Unger in The Crash being as close to sort of typical Hollywood beautiful. Deborah like, someone Harry. who's glam- glamorous and gorgeous. Yeah. I don't know if anyone in Hollywood would would consider Deborah Harry to be. Oh. Uh, would they? Well, yeah. She was a big, did, had a sort of side career. As I don't know. She had, that, she had that weird heroin chic thing. Yeah, yeah, big yeah, in yeah, the yeah. 60s. Um, Bug eye. I'd, I'd say that Cronenberg uh, uh, and David Lynch... Um, live in the same city, but on different sides of town. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. I think fair. they went to different schools and yeah. studied different philosophies. Yeah, exactly. And they interpret things this, that the same sort of information. They might different. be rivals at, you know, <laughs> in, in like the local I, it was, film fight. I was listening to Ileana Douglas last night on um, Gilbert's show. And she was talking about how everyone kind of thinks everyone hangs out, you know, because she dated Scorsese. And uh-huh. she was talking about, like, everyone uh, thinks... I've heard that podcast. Yeah, she's, like, talking to, like, everyone thinks we all hang out. And it's like, not really. You get them all in a room. And then until you come around to, like, cope Francis being the genius on Apocalypse Now, everyone's kind of, you know, until you hit that one thing everyone can agree on. Right. Um, well, so he must have... You know, he was engaged to Rus- Isabella Rossellini for I want to. I have four years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Funny story. When he met her, he didn't know who she was, and he walked up to her and he goes, "You're like you're, you're beautiful. Um, um, you could be Ingrid Bergman's daughter." And and her <laughs> someone with Lynch goes, "She is the <laughs> Ingrid Bergman's daughter." <laughs> and that I and I think that right there. Uh, kind of captures part of uh, David Lynch's charm. That doe-eyed innocence. He's just kind of like, doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, this is cool. But I love that he, like, Jen, his daughter, is great. She seems, you know, grounded, and her work is exemplary. She's working a lot in in TV. Television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And her films are, are great. I wonder, though, if she felt the need to, like with Boxing Elena, Uh To, to, um, to be weird. To be weird like her dad. I will say, oh, the name's escaping me. What's the film Jen Lynch did about the two FBI cops that come into a town? Uh, Genevieve Bujold, I want to not Genevieve Bujold. God damn it. I don't Bill, remember. Bill, Bill Paxton is in it? Anyway, it's great. God damn it. It's, it's great. <laughs> I don't have my pen. And that's look. why... That's why people tune in. <laughs> <laughs> it's surveillance or, or something or other. God, I'm surveillance with Jenna, with uh, with Bill Pullman. Yeah, yeah, Bill Pullman. What That's was a it? great film. Surveillance. Yeah, 
boy. <laughs> That's when you start going like your age. When you're snapping at people going, yeah, you know. You know, you know. Um, you have kids to do that. What's that? That's why you have kids to do that. It's like, I you know well, what I mean. To continue in that vein of old men who can't remember shit. <laughs> There's a great documentary about the making of that movie that she did in India where like the lady oh, yeah, turns yeah. into a snake. Yeah. And uh and uh yeah, she wasn't she wasn't doing too good then. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it's something of the gods or I don't know, something like that. But if you, if you if you and I can't remember the name of the goddamn snake movie either that Robert Kurtzman worked on. But now, you have enough information. Yeah, children, go look it up. Go look it up. What do you and, want and, from me? So that... What should be the keyword Google search for your listeners? <laughs> <laughs> Jen Jennifer Lynch. Yeah. That would be the keyword Snake. Google's. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Snake. Um, India. What? A couple other little facts. Uh, f- it's for... called Hiss, by the way. Hiss is go. the movie. Well, there's a there's a there's a, a documentary about the making of Hiss, and uh, it's pretty. It, it's 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 pretty amazing. You you really get to see the the stress that she was going through. I figured it's sensational. It's sensational. Um, David Lynch for nearly for almost uh, for nearly every day for almost eight years he ate at Bob's Big Boy in Los Angeles. Oh, there you go. You, you find the thing you you yeah. go with it. Yeah. Um, what else? You like that suit. Why buy another? That's what Einstein said. Yeah, Einstein right. by like eight, eight, uh, yeah. So uh, Lynch is cited as some of his influences: Bunnell, Herzog, Fellini, Bergman, Kubrick, and Polanski. That all makes sense. Yeah, it kind of does. Kind of. I think if you put those ingredients together and add Americana and mm-hmm. Nyquil, you have his movies. Yeah. And Nyquil. And Nyquil. <laughs> that like makes me laugh. David Lynch movies seen through a K hole. David Lynch for Nyquil. He, one of his favorite films is The Wizard of Oz. He also cites Vertigo and Glenn or Glenda. Of course. Movie. None of which is surprising, but also none of which goes, oh, uh, yes. Well, that's yeah. strange, stagey acting. I mean, that, Although, those are. Those old, all those older films. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's a, you see it in the Love Witch, which is brilliant, but it, it's a, it's just a formal way of performing that older films have. And I just think it's as you look at Lynch's films, what would be interesting to do is that the different layers of technique that he puts on top of it. Cause he, has, he has this sort of formalism in his actors, uh, and then and then sort of strange di- dialogue, and then it's shot very very odd. So it's like there's, there's so it's hard to describe. That's why I think people just don't get Lynchian right because it's a very complex thing of like hiring, scripting, how it's shot, this sort of odd formalism that we're not used to see, and then we're seeing this in a uh, in a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. So there's so many levels of strange and prisms upon prisms about what is what makes it Lynchian. And that's what I feel some people feel as a trick. It just it's such a it's such a complicated thing to pull off this specific tone. Mm-hmm. Because no one else does it, though I think a lot of folks are very influenced by his work. Yeah. Right. Um some of his other favorite films and this reflects clearly film school. Eight and a Half, La Strada, Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, Lolita, Hour of the Wolf, uh, 
some Jacques Tati, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday and My Uncle, um, Rear Window, Vertigo, Wizard of Oz. All that makes sense. That that's Wizard what... of Oz. I mean, you know, winds up being a big part of uh, Wild at Heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had that something on there. Um, so, do we want to go through his films and just sort of talk about him? Briefly? I don't really want to go through his influences. Okay. And how would we feel? Those movies are the ones that we've watched. Sort of influences work. Okay. See, and I don't. And, and I don't. Again, I I don't see those films reflected in his work that much. I, I I I see I see somebody who's been exposed to all of that, and mm-hmm. I see somebody who um, latches onto something that they you know that they like you know a, a particular aesthetic or something. But I really don't I really don't see them reflected in his films. I, when I see his films, you know what I see? I see Denny's. I see Denny's. <laughs> Denny's is a good thing to always see, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. or or like Cracker Barrel. Yeah, but it's it's in Americana. I see. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I could see David Lynch being an avid fisher. Sure, a person who fly goes, fisher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Not like he's not in the chair in the back of the boat bringing barracuda. No, he's no. he's picking up perch off the off the yeah, surface of a he's pond. He's standing. He's standing knee deep in water. <laughs> Sending waiters. out, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't with, imagine David Cronenberg with his, with his, you know, his weird little basket on the side that he can with a floating cooler of coffee, <clears throat> ice cream. Yeah, that sure you know, that he could then put the fish into the coffee maker. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, yeah, well, there are definitely films I think that he he did for money. And he did for to build his legend, um, and then there are films I think he did for himself. At a certain point, he breaks free. Right around the time Blue Velvet happens and Twin Peaks happens, he sure. starts to go like, "I'm going to do what I want to do and not." Right. So you start to see things. Confession. Confession. Yes. I've never watched Twin Peaks when it was on. Really? Nope. I think the first season, since we're talking about Twin Peaks, I think the first season of Twin Peaks is really, really good, mm. and then it starts to slide into I I well I think everybody probably has that same feeling and and a big chunk of that was beyond Mark Frost and Dave mm-hmm. Lynch's control it was just yeah. like the 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 this you know it was, I saw ratings that. in the studio fucking with you Right right at that point once you're into your second and third year Right I will say Mark Frost um if you could ever people kids out there man if you ever get a chance to pick up a mark frost book even he has a book called the greatest game ever played that was made into a movie it's about a golf game Uh believe it or not and it's super exciting but his books um the list of seven and the six messiahs Uh it's almost like a prequel to everything you know about sherlock holmes Ah. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is one of the heroes, and he meets this guy who is straight up Holmes, like an in, supposedly the inspiration for Holmes. Sure, and they're great. They're like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of books. Ah, I yeah. would love that. They're right up there on yeah. the shelf. Yeah. yeah, they're great. My kind of my kind of stuff. Yeah, so. lot, there's lots of like standing on the top of moving trains in big coats. You know what I mean? Sure, chasing each other. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's sure. great stuff. Um, but Twin Peaks, man, talk about a fan base. Well. Right? It was it, it was kind of lightning striking. I mean, everything was kind of 
happening at the right time. That was like, uh, what was that, 89, 90? Uh, 90 to 91. 90 to 91. So we're just coming into this 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 time of like this, this Northwest, you know, is cool. All of a sudden mm-hmm. we got Seattle grunge coming. We got all the stuff that's happening. <clears throat> Northern exposure was kind of happening around the same. I, for some just ending. Yeah, for yeah, some yeah. reason that that all kind of worked and it worked together. And Twin <laughs> Peaks just like freaking took off. I like Heather did not watch it during its initial run on television. I wound up discovering it on some I don't know some cable station was doing a marathon. And, right, repeats and, or whatever. Yeah, and, and 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 I, you know, probably that same character flaw that I've always had is like, oh, everybody's paying attention to this. It must suck. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's um, the punk rock. That's the punk rock. I, yeah, I guess. The and reason why I watch it because like everybody loves it. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah. it's gonna be stupid. And then you know, and invariably, what happens is you know, four years after the fact, I'm like, oh my god, have you guys ever listened <laughs> to this band, that, like Pearl Jam? Do you know these guys? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I've yeah. never made that mistake to say. That. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like Twin Peaks happened post. Elf and Man, post Blue Velvet, post Wild at Heart, post Doom. It's, yeah, it's important to talk about his first. Because those are the things that I think that made that made a significant enough footprint in the sand. Yeah, that that gave him the cash to get away with stuff like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important to talk about Eraserhead because. Uh, well, for one thing, it took five years to make. You know, they well they. I they, didn't know that. That's well, crazy. It, so him and his little band of actors and crew, and they were small. It was a small group. <laughs> Catherine Coulson, and and he was married to the, one of the ladies for a few years, and it, they were all living in this house. They were living in this one place, and they had built the set there. Jack Nance was there, and they, they it was like a little commune, and they worked on getting this film made for, I think he was using, um, the money he was using to make it was was coming from a grant or something like that. It was just the fact that they were able to stick it out and mm-hmm. get the film made. Now, when Eraserhead was playing, I remember I went and saw it in a theater, and I was awarded with a button that said I sat through Eraserhead. <laughs> you still have <laughs> it? I do not. I do yeah, not. I wish I did. It's awesome. Um, I was like 16 or something. I want to say we're clear, I, I want to say I still have the scratch and sniff card from polyester when it first came. When yeah. I was in college in Philadelphia oddly enough I went to the TLA and I had to give them a copy of my credit card to rent the VHS copy that they had, which of course, like I ran back home and I put my VH my VCRs together to dub it, and I still have the VHS dub today. <laughs> but that is a horrible VHS bootlegger when I was a young girl. You. Well, it was it was important to me to see Eraserhead because it was one of those movies that always got it always got checked as a horror film. Like, when I would right. read about, like, in lists yeah. and stuff, it was like this horror film. And I'm like, okay, cool. 
It's not a horror film. No. It's got some horrific stuff in it. It's it's so odd. It's a and friend of horror films. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And any horror people should be watching Lynch to go, this is how I really... Pu- the, the, and to try to figure out the techniques. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe be inspired Dude, by them to the bring baby, it to The baby in that movie is still kind of jaw-dropping. I love that baby. It always yeah. reminded me of like like a turtle without its shell. It, it reminded me of like an embryonic horse. <laughs> the new the new Rorschach test for <laughs> what what does David Lynch's Eraserhead baby the baby me to you? <laughs> you mean like I feel I feel very attached to the baby. I think it's very nice. I wish they could have done something to make it stop crying. Right. But it's mostly uh, the the nightmare responsibility of a new father, Razorhead. Right. And yeah. how much of that is like that? Like as a father, you, you're looking at this thing. Having been a father, yeah. you look at infants and you just go, what the hell is this right. thing? This thing. So it taps into that, but it doesn't do it in such a way as to sort of grind your face you, into you it. You can't, yeah, you can't say that that's what the movie's about. Because but it's, it's there. just an aspect. <clears throat> and so it's like... That movie is is like it's it's you know I mean if you if you want to sit and dig it's it's about so many different things right, right. It, you know, and uh, and it is it is one of the few movies that I can say is truly uh, in my estimation great and weird <laughs> like because a lot of times people throw the weird um, yeah. um, adjective around way too loosely. And it's like, well, it's not that weird, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, I've seen weirder. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> but that movie truly is. Weird. Well, it does what film. It kind of taps into what film kind of is supposed to do, and that is, they they say that films are dreams, right? And Eraserhead captures that sort of not quite a nightmare, not quite a dream, dream, right? I um, think that that ambiguity is also part of. What makes a lot of stuff what he does intangible? Mm-hmm. Right. Why it's hard to describe what it is. Lynch is. Yeah, I, it brings up the idea of like again, what is what are his sets like? You know, like how do you achieve that kind of weirdness without right. manipulation of um, of your cast? You know? Also, not crazy over the top. Right. They're yeah. They're it's not just snow. It's yeah. just enough. And there's so much in that work. And I think that's part of why not having this, like, A to B sort of narrative in this world, because at some point you're looking at clouds. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good, good way to put it. And so you have to leave the ambiguity in the acting and in the work that you do to allow for audience interpretation. Now... When I talk to a lot of young filmmakers, they say like, "Oh, let's leave this and this." And this is interesting for you to for to talk about, Tom. Is in narrative or in plot the idea of what is not told? Now, I believe that in a good film, when you're creating sort of these clouds that people have to look into, you have to create the clouds that kind of look like something. Mm-hmm. So, author standpoint, and I feel a lot of young filmmakers. Just go like let the audience figure it out, but there's nothing there for them to put together. Right. Well, because the filmmaker himself hasn't figured it out. Right. But they shouldn't. I mean, that's I've talked to a few filmmakers. Mm. They shouldn't figure it out because that's the magic spell that creates ambiguity. And I think when we look at Lynch's work, we kind of see that it's not. He had no idea. There's there, there's specific themes or interests 
that he's trying to put into his yeah, film, but it's the way he puts it and it's the sections that he puts together for you to assemble the puzzle. It's all right there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's like, for me, I feel like you you have to, you're God as, as the filmmaker, writer, or whatever. You're God, and so you have to have considered everything. Otherwise, you end up with things like a pl- the platypus. Well, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean. And then it's up to you. Once you know all of the pieces on the of on, of the puzzle, then it's up to you to be start to obfuscate stuff. And that's what I think. It, ambiguity happening and, and that kind of thing happening by happenstance is fun when it happens. But mostly, in my it's my experience that. You need to have at least considered everything, there's um, a, there's a and then big, decided what to hide and what to not hide. Right. There's a big difference between so not, I just, not knowing what's going on, yeah, and knowing exactly what's going on but just not telling anybody, or knowing that what, like someone, like there was a this happened a long time ago about I had written something and it had to do with this guy carried a bag. Doesn't matter what was going on. Doesn't matter. Um, but he was carrying a bag, and and one of the barriers came back and said, "You never pointed out the, the the color of the bag." And my response was because it wasn't necessary. And so, right. by the things that you exclude are either um, uh, superficial, not, not superficial, superlative to story. They're, uh-huh. they're 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 outside of what you need to know to get to your point. And then then any any of that the stuff we're talking about gets inferred by the the the, the, the viewer or right. the reader or whatever. And I think that, that I, I think I don't think really one way is better or worse than the it other. It just will work. It's, yeah, yeah, I agree. It, because some people, you know, Hemingway will tell you, you know, how many freaking uh, threads are in the fucking bag, you know. And yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Is it important? No. But that's but it's that's what Hemingway does. As long as does. you successfully get over the finish line, right? <laughs> I don't care now, how you do it. Now, if that guy had said, "Hey, you never said what color the bag was," and you said, "Well, it's obvious, isn't it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, <laughs> then now you're carrying your authorship beyond the written work, and you're fucking yeah. with it. Yeah, that's, yeah, I yeah. Think that's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's such a weird like psychologist game. Well, what does it mean to you? <laughs> what does it mean to you? It's obvious. There it's are some authors that will define that, and I just, to me, I always felt that I have such a imagination and ability to put things together. When text becomes too descriptive, it it grinds my brain to a halt because I just have to keep redrawing and redrawing the scenes over and over and over again. Yeah, which is yeah. why I like less, and I. And uh, why I'm very attracted to sort of like modern modern narratives because there's there's a sparseness to how they describe the world. Well, that's, when you say bag, it'll come up with ever color it comes up in my brain. Yeah, well, you know it was funny. We had, were at dinner one night, and Louis C.K. does a thing about, and he says uh, the term a bag of dicks, uh-huh. and we went around the table like, tell me what when someone says a bag of dicks, what what that sounds like to you, sure. and we got this wide variety of things so i think you're right you don't have by not i don't know why i brought up bag of dicks um but you don't have to show everything i think that's a mistake a lot of young writers make because they feel like it's my job to describe and so i'm gonna get like obsessive about the detail and then i think as time goes on you realize what what folly that is because none of that is needed it's like I don't need to know what um if you're if you're a writer or an aspiring writer and you and this is a common criticism of your work you're running into this a lot 
um, start writing scripts. It'll break you of that really fast. Right. Yeah. Right. Screenplays will, will especially you... look at stuff like Walter Hill scripts because they're mostly white page. page. There's yeah. Most there's so little. And when you start to realize that the, the, the reader is going to bring his own set designer yeah. himself to the table, that you don't need to get down to um, uh, uh, specifics about what kind of desk it is or what kind of phone it is. I'll be, I'll be honest. My, my, my favorite, what, what, what appeals the most to me is, and this kind of reflects my life, is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I want a guy who you know tells me the basic layout of the yeah. room so that... When the fight scene happens, I know where that desk is, but I don't right. need to know if it was a roll de- if it was a roll top desk or if it was exactly a, you know you know is what it I mean? pertinent? Yeah. That said, if you point it out, like if I've, if you I, say it's a roll top desk, you better have a reason. There better be a reason, right? Exactly. I had an old uh, writing instructor that talked about if you by happenstance open show the gun in the drawer, that's that that better that better that better or, be a reason unless unless you're doing the the Pulp Fiction thing mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, we've got yeah. the light coming out of the briefcase, but we never find out what the light is. So let's talk about the, the next film after Eraserhead, Elephant Man. Uh, a, a, a producer on that, Mel Brooks. Yeah. Elephant Man is one of the, is, I mean, it's, it's, I think it does, it shows what, what David Lynch does really well in that he can he can't. He he has the discipline to say, "Okay, I'm just going to tell a regular story, but I can't resist throwing this in." Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, I love that it's in black and white, and I love that it's it, it doesn't shy away from. I mean, it really sort of examines what it would be like sure. you know, to to be that man. It has amazing performances. Oh yeah, it's it's yeah, it, yeah, yeah. acting wise, it's. It's unreal, and, but it, but yeah, I mean, if you can, and and he does this a couple of times throughout his career, most notably Elephant Man and the Straight Story, where the the film is kind of not Lynchian in what we what we kind of think mm-hmm. of. Um, it's a, you know it's a, it's a straight story. It's it's coming at you. He's just telling you the events as they happen. But but it's filtered through his. He has this weird monocle that he'll hold up to one eye yeah and he's got to throw that you know like the 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 weird i don't know the rape you know with scene with the elephant or whatever you want to call it the weird images of the elephant and the lady screaming and you know (laughs) you know it's like he can't he can't not put that in there yeah yeah he can't help himself yeah um yeah, it's it's uh and the unveiling scene of, of the examination yeah is so amazing um, yeah, good stuff. I mean, it shows that he can play within, play by the rules, and play within the construct, and that's great. And I, and I think that I think that it's it's pretty. Um, it was a good it was a good move. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, a strong narrative, and right. I always I love the end of the film. I always thought it was yeah. very poetic. He, um, Elephant Man. Uh, Joe Merrick was asked to he goes sleep the way other human beings do, and by doing that, he died. And so right. I always felt that sort of metaphorical. And he knew that he knew that 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 would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd been advised not to sleep. You know, he knew sure. he had to sleep sitting up because he it would close off his windpipe, and and uh, so he, you know, in in essence, committed suicide. Right. Right. 
and that's and that's okay. I think especially when, man, you've just got to get be just tired. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. You know. Um, I'm gonna move on to Dune because I have a lot to say about Dune. Uh-huh. Uh, what a glorious mess! What a glorious '80s mess! He's disavowed the film. Won't talk about it. Um, this is really interesting. He there's a 190 minute extended cut of the film um, that was prepared for television, and it's very odd. It cuts back and forth between the film we're used to and things like storyboards and drawings and mm-hmm. voiceovers. Um, uh, in 2009, on the 20 the movie's 25th anniversary, uh, a fan asked him to sign. A copy of it, um, a vintage paperback uh, called "The Making of Dune" as Judas Booth, which was the name he used on that. Right. But for, other than that, he refuses to talk about it. Won't talk. Um, has turned down numerous offers to do special edition DVDs, and uh, he says revisiting the film would be too too painful. Um, has he has he talked about why, like what? Well, I think it was that he just got started to get just really screwed. Yeah, you know, going going into it because it had already passed through Jodorowsky's hands. And if you haven't seen Jodorowsky's Dune, go see it. But um, um, so it feels to me like not, not and and I'm not like Tom. I'm not a fan of Dune. I've not read the books. I I, I know nothing about it other than what was told to me from Iron Maiden on the album Peace of Mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> But when I look at that movie, I always get the feeling like this is a much bigger story than than can fit in this mm-hmm. film. There are things in it that I think are really cool, mm-hmm. uh, I, um, and uh, I well, I think I it's like a, the visual style. When I, when I saw it when it first came out, they when you went into the theater, ushers were standing there with these little cards, and the on the cards it was a glossary, sure, like. Shai Halud, that's what this is. You know, Water of Life, that's what this is. And when I left the theater, I remember thinking, in order for a normal person to understand what the fuck was just going on, they needed that card. Yeah. Um, but if you had read the books, the card was almost insulting. You know what I mean? Sure, I sure. Um, but it's so 80s. Everything from Sting to the color schemes, mm-hmm. to the, the hairstyles, the hairstyles, the slightly ripped off Giger, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, however, you're right. There, the the scope of even just the first book would entail like a Game of Thronesian kind of sure. kind of thing, which I hear they're talking about. Believe it or not, yeah. I know they're talking about redoing it. Um, uh, but the problem is, is that in the midst of a blaring Toto score, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah like, it's just, there's so many things that just like, there's things that are right, and then there's just things that are so glaringly not right. Well, on paper, Toto makes perfect sense. When you look at their seasoned um, studio musicians, mm-hmm. David, the keyboard player David Page, his father, Marty Page, is a renowned musician and a renowned film sure. scorer. Um, it should have worked, but instead we got this weird cock rocker bombast that in in the score that that uh, I just don't know. I just don't know. Um, it's an odd little. It's an. Odd, it is an odd thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to look real quick to see. 
it was a disaster. It's only gained any notoriety as sort of an, an oddity. Right. You know, I, can't, I can't say I hate it. I consider it more of an oddity. I love, of course, the sandworms. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and little good, things. Some good visuals and some good faces to look at. So oh. I don't scrap it. I don't think it's bland. Yeah. But when you, when you look around a set and it's like, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart, uh, Everett McGill, uh-huh. um, uh, uh, Chucky, fuck, I'm spacing on his name. Brad Dourif. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, Jurgen Prochnow. It's just like, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of. Uh, I think they did get the Baron right on this one. Yeah. And I think that, uh, a lot of the, it's just be, it's just an odd thing. And you wonder if it's the studio stepping in saying, this makes no sense. And so we need a lot of this weird narration. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets the gum Jabbar scene pretty, pretty rocking. See our intro for that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you're fucked no matter what you do. No matter Sci-Fi Channel did a mini series on Dune, and right. it's actually quite good, but it still falls far short. Whereas I, I think the Elephant Man was a perfect choice for him to do mm-hmm. after Eraserhead. Dune was probably the least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they, that was a matter of we got this project and we don't have and a we've director. Got this young. Uh, visionary director who's won a lot of awards with the elephant man and shows yeah. he can do weird shit because he's you know yeah yeah, yeah. and they just missed the, the ball on it yeah. but it's 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 a it's a pretty glorious mess yeah um after that he did blue velvet yeah and i think i think blue velvet i think blue velvet and twin peaks kind of go hand in hand they, well it's they, like a trilogy blue velvet wild at heart twin peaks yeah they you know they all kind of went to the prom together and uh, uh, Blue Velvet, in my estimation, is um, if I was going to say here's the the uh, the perfect Lynchian film, or the or or, yeah. or the um, you know that this is this is when you see when you this is David Lynch. Agreed. I think, I think Blue Velvet is it. Um, and uh, I would have to give them a. I would have to give them more than one film. For me, Blue Velvet works the most for me, but it's not. I think David Lynch can also get weirder than Blue Velvet. Oh, he can oh, absolutely. He can definitely get weirder, and that's where I start running into problems is later on, mm-hmm. um, because there's only there's only so much ambiguity and weirdness that Langley's willing to walk I'm top dog. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like I need, look, I'm old and I don't know how to use GPS. I need a freaking road, (laughs) right? I need, I need a road map. Uh, That's why I can't play things like Fallout or Borderlands. It's just this open sandbox thing. So you start playing and you end up just wandering around. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just driving around, man. Because um, that's what you know what I do in real life. I just kind of drive around. Uh, but I agree, there, and then, and I also include Fire Walk with me. Yeah, you know, all in that it's that same time frame from '86 to '92, where he he was fairly prolific, and it and everything was firing, everything's firing on all cylinders. It's only after Fire Walk with me, and I think maybe in response to its lack of critical acclaim. That he started to do things like Lost Highway, and Lost Highway has one of the 
creepiest scenes in cinema, in my opinion. Sure. Getting a getting a VHS tape of someone standing taken from the from the position of someone standing at the foot of your bed while you sleep. Yeah. There's nothing creepier than that. And and and, and uh, Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Is, <laughs> like he's like. And this was before him him right. shooting his wife or allegedly shooting his wife. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, it was. It was like. It, it, you know what? The Robert Blake character in that movie looks a lot like the grandmother in, <laughs> <laughs> in 1970s. The we grandmother. may be onto something. Robert yeah. Blake is the grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Blake is a sweat. I've seen that guy on like Howard Stern and other interview shows, and what a prick! What a complete like! What a little tough guy prick! You right. know what I mean? Right. Yeah. He was perfect for Beretta. Beretta, dude. <laughs> I still say shit like from Beretta like. That. I, I catch myself on occasion going, you can take that to the bank. <laughs> it's like, you're a douchebag, Tom. You're, you're referencing like 70s cop shows and no one gets it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Heather. By, by the way, by, yes. b- before we before we step back into what we're supposed to be doing, the um, the theme song to Beretta. Uh, fly Like great, a Sparrow or yes. Fly Something Like a Sparrow. So, yes. I, it's I my, keep your eye on the sparrow. Keep your eye on the sparrow. To, in my estimation, one of the greatest television theme songs sure. of all time. Sammy Davis Jr. I want to say is singing it. Dude, it was it was great. Fucking awesome. It was great. Okay, back to back to Blue Velvet. <laughs> Blue Velvet. Um, awesome. And, and how iconic is the Frank Booth character? Oh, Frank Booth, man. I always imagine like Heather dating it like a Frank Booth, right? Yeah. It's, except, I've never been as lucky. <laughs> except I, Booth, I but I, but in my my heart, I have my, my crushes on Ben because I like I like a uh, I like a I like a feminine noir unhinged crazy guy, and just Ben has this this grace to him, but also this violence. This is the Dean Stockwell character. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Dean ah, he's a suave out. motherfucker. He is. Oh my he god. Is. The only person who can fucking tell Frank Booth what to do. And you That's wonder right. about that. Talk about ambiguity. Without even laying it on the table, you like you wonder. It's like, why is he deferring to this guy? Yeah. 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 Cause he's the smooth. thought was when Dean Stockwell rewrote the character, because mm-hmm. he created Ben and what Ben looks like, he felt that who, how he was written in the script, he goes, Frank looks up to Ben. And so... This is the character that Dean Wells, St- Dean Stockwell created that Ben would probably look up to. Hmm. Because he's a cool motherfucker. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. He's yeah. To me, he, he, he has the control that Frank Booth doesn't have. And I think that Frank Booth um, is, is probably, can recognize in himself that he's, you know, you know a loose cannon and goes... He wishes he could be almost like it's almost like id and super ego, right? Right, right. Yeah, like half of the same, two halves of the same person. Yeah, that together they might be a, a rational person, right? But, but but separate, they're not. Huh? Huh? Yeah, that that character, man. Um, but how many people walked they, around after that? You fuck or whatever. Yeah. Daddy wants to fuck. <laughs> you know, originally. Originally, uh, there were uh, the the idea was that he was going to be breathing helium, and that every time that he spoke, his voice was going to be like this. <laughs> and and then somebody decided that was going to be too silly. But now 
if you think about That'd it, be great. how how crazy and weird and fucked up and creepy would that have been? Wow. I, does anyone know? Is there is there footage of this? Like, did they do tests? No, on they it? didn't do. Uh, no, it was like it was an idea they were kicking around. And, and I'm sure was it, was it was brilliant until he spoke. <laughs> I could hear a lot, see a lot of shaking of heads, going, "I don't know, David. I don't know." But it would have been creepy. It would have been creepy. creepy as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, but now I mean, it's fucked because you can't steal it. You can't you can't use no, it because any time you someone puts a mask to their face, they think, "Oh, okay. yeah, yeah." Too bad. No, no, no. no we've, I, we've been shown you can steal whatever the fuck you want because <laughs> because people's memories are fucking short and they don't care. I I was thinking that Tom was saying is it's so iconic. Yeah, and it's hard to get away from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost and then. You know, so like it's almost like uh, what's his, the, is it Doctor Satan in um, Thousand Corpses that with the same yeah. breather yeah. math thing? It's so weird, you know. And even when even when you see, uh, uh, maybe this is just me, <laughs> but if I'm at the mall and I see someone with an O2 mask on, it's it's always a little like wow, yeah, like wow, that's it's weird. There's, it, there's it, part of you that's like going, I'm watching that fucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could probably watch. Blue Velvet every day, and for me, it's it's watching the performances and the and the actors they hired for this movie, right? And weird, and and that's that's and that's, just weird enough that it doesn't challenge your ability to put together the map of the universe of what you're watching. Because mm-hmm. I feel that when you watch a lot of stuff that's very avant garde, like Eraserhead, or it was it's an interesting comment when I was reviewing the Brothers Quay disc with my friend who's going, I can see why you're exhausted all the time trying to figure out movies like this. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the effort that it takes to watch because something it's work. incredibly it's abstract. Yeah, and and yeah. figure it out. And I think Blue Velvet has just enough tone it the tone is incredibly strange and dreadful, but you can follow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's and not... I'm always affected by casting. If you give me some great character actors and great faces, that's the reason why I can li- I can quote unquote listen to ta- to Tarantino films. Right, sure. Right. Look at these great actors saying these great things. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, I've been um, inadvertently on you know on recommended on your YouTube page. Uh, they've been recommending a lot of scenes out of uh, Django Unchained. Yeah. And uh, I I watch them and I just go, yeah, that's. That's awesome, man. And then, and then I think about like my my reception of the film, and I think when you string them all together, it just maybe it was overkill. But it's it's interesting to look at those things in, as isolated little clips. Sometimes um, I think that I, I sometimes I see David Lynch's films that way, mm. in that they're they're collections of odd little vignettes mm-hmm. that are just kind of strung together. Yeah. Um, Tarantino films definitely are. Wild at Heart, uh, mm-hmm. in particular, comes to mind. The, um, One of the greatest deaths ever in Wild at Heart. Oh, yeah. The Willem Dafoe thing yeah, is awesome. Yeah, the Willem Dafoe death is great. Uh, um, I love the Crispin Glover character mm-hmm. in Wild at Heart. And he's, like, not important to the story. And it's just, he's, it's brilliant. It's yeah. just so freaking weird. I, Yeah, I just, Crispin Glover is someone who I think it, someone's going to tap him for something that's going to be just perfect yeah um 
Uh, I don't know, man. Reuben and Ed was pretty perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, not really. <laughs> His Willard what was it was much better than I thought it was going to be. I thought that was going to be really, really terrible. But and it was terrible, but it wasn't really, really terrible. There's a lady here in town uh, used to be an actress and a model that never quite made it, but was part of his menagerie, his entourage. Oh, really? And yeah, she and she, you try to get her to talk about, you know, let's hear some Crispin Glover stories, and she's too far weird and out, like like she's like, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Like she would be working for like Ted B. Michaels or. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'll be honest, at Twin Peaks, my my sporadic interest mm-hmm. in Lynch, officially sort of, I set it aside. Most of the things after that, Lost Highway and Straight Story, I, I saw sort of by default. Mm-hmm. It was on someplace where I was at. Sure. Um, but after that, I lose complete. I haven't seen Inland Empire, I'll be honest. Um, I've seen up to Inland Empire, and I saw Lost Highway actually when when I was in I was in college, and I it, I loved it so much. Mm. At a certain age, just the, the soundtrack. I remember I was taking motion graphic uh, motion graphic classes, and I was taking all the songs from that soundtrack. So the the ambient stuff mm-hmm. and images against it and typography. And I was just very, very inspired by it and trying to figure it out. And then I was able to figure it out, which makes, which, which is when I watched uh, Mahone Drive. Mm-hmm. That that was an easier one to understand what was going on. But to me, Mahone Drive is the disappointment to me. Well, uh, it's not a surprise right. because because after Inland Empire in 2006, he launched the David uh, David Lynch Foundation. For consciousness-based education and world peace. It's in the midst of a campaign to raise $7 billion to further its goal. Um, so after that, he's just been... He's got a dozen, dozen and a half just short films. Um, up until uh, 2014 20 through 2017, when the pitching and launching of the new Twin Peaks series right. happens. Right. Uh, Twin Peaks, for me, was when I did discover it was really important um, because it it showed me the DNA that a lot of later lauded television came from things like Picket Fences The X-Files all of that that stuff and and, and I I found um, this whole idea that you know you've got this basic story but that there's you know, layers and layers and layers under that, uh, and that you're not, and that you're not being shown all of it, or that you're you're being shown glimpses enough was that was a big deal to me. I hadn't really thought of storytelling that way before. Like prior to then, everything was a Conan novel. You know, um, you know, there's a bad guy, kill him. You know, right. and uh, so that's that's what it did for me, and I loved its. Um, I loved its uh, "I'm with stupid" type uh, T-shirt wearing that it did with blue velvet. Yeah. You know, they're very much uh, hand in hand. Um, before we wind out, there was a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, he personally approves all of his DVD releases and does not put chapter stops 
is adamant about not putting chapter stops in. Yeah, because he believes that a film is meant to be viewed from beginning to end. Yeah, but so, you know, when you're sitting around, you know, meditating all the time, you have that luxury. That luxury. Here's, I found three things that I found really fascinating, and they, and they were films that he was asked to direct but turned down. And, and I'm going to run them by you guys, and I'm, I'm going to get your opinion. Number one, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> he turned it down saying that the script was funny but it wasn't his thing okay okay it gets better okay um after after seeing Eraserhead George Lucas offered him a chance to direct Re Return of the Jedi but <laughs> <laughs> but Lynch turned him down Lynch felt that the film would be more Lucas's vision than his own and he's he's exactly right sure. on that one Sure, sure, and this sure. is the one that really intrigued. So instead, me. he did do. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. Hold on a second. Yeah. As a matter of fact, <laughs> Return of the Jedi was eighty three, and Dune was eighty four. Yeah. Um. This is the one that intrigues me, though. At one point, Lynch was asked to direct uh, Manhunter, the Michael Mann film, and I think that would have been great. That would have been great. I think that would have been a good match. Do you I think? agree with that one. Yeah. I think it's, he has a. I think he has this great influence around noir mm -hmm. and to do something that's a straight noir like that would be great right on yeah so uh that brings us I just how his dollar hide would be yeah right mm -hmm. yeah I, I imagine him casting someone with a real cleft palette that would be mm -hmm. yeah pretty yeah. amazing mm -hmm. um or well that's a hell of a way to go i was gonna say joaquin phoenix because he he has a cleft palette had a cleft right. palette but uh, yeah, that's kind of a weird thing. Give me a cleft palate type. Yeah. <laughs> um, has anyone seen any of these later films? There's there's a eight shorts. Um, no, I you know like I, I, he much, did a Moby video shot in the back of the head. I don't know. I, I did a Duran Duran video documentary called um, Unstaged. I find I, I, much like Tom. Uh, after a certain point, I just, I just couldn't do it. I just like, it's it it, it was like, it's it's I don't like it whenever somebody gives in to either what's expected of them mm -hmm. or has no constraints anymore. Right. I don't like it when when there isn't somebody to tell Stephen King, dude, this is too much. Or, Robert you know, Rodriguez comes to mind. Robert Rodriguez is another great example yeah. where there isn't somebody to kind of bring in the reins. Um, because people, no matter who you are or what kind of a genius you are, are the worst uh, gauges for what they they need people to tell them yeah. you're doing good or you're doing Two bad. Things. One, I think you're right. I think it's ego. Mm -hmm. that ego unchecked is a terrible thing. And I've always said that in any big organization, you need to hire one person that you've known forever. Yeah. That whose sole job is to sit in on meetings and look at you periodically and go, really? Yeah. <laughs> who knew, you know doesn't have an agenda and yada 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 the guy that's always going to get you out of the fight in the bar because he knows <laughs> yeah. right he knows he's seen you enough times yeah yeah that, yeah, yeah that it's like hey but it's that unchecked ego where it's like i can do this i can right. and that's how you get things like another glorious mess and that's once upon a time in mexico yeah you know so dude 
we didn't talk a lot about it, but uh, the a straight story. Yes, it's a fucking great movie. I was going to say, is there any ones that we sort of glossed over that we want to bring back up? Straight story is a great movie. Straight story is a great movie. Solid performance. Doesn't look like a David Lynch film, um, and yet it has again, again. There's the dear lady. Yeah. There's the lady. Well, who, then it's premise: a guy riding a lawnmower, which is a know. true story. It was That's a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Harry, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, Farnsworth is great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Sissy Spacek is great. Anything else that you can consider that we missed, Heather? Nothing that I can think of. But I was I was dwelling on the fact that Stray Story is based on a real story, and I was thinking that Lynch's films, except for sort of like a racer head and maybe Lost Highway, are just normal enough mm-hmm. that, that you could possibly say it happened, or they were. They were urban legends about what happened right. in real, like yeah. something like Blue Velvet. It's possible. Well, I think Lynch, is but someone... in an urban legend sense. Agreed. I think Lynch is someone who could hear a story about a man driving a lawnmower across mm-hmm. several states, um, and turn that and into... turn that into something. You know, only only through the prism of that weird eye mm-hmm. could could he see the potential for a story there. I agree. I totally agree. Um, so yeah, so. I will. I'm gonna actually make a personal commitment to myself, and I'm gonna go back and watch both Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, just to see how full of shit I am. Yeah. On that. So. I don't. I don't think you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to news real quick, we will get out of here. A couple of, unlike last week, there's only been a couple of deaths. No. <laughs> uh, number one, Grant Teak, Grant Tinker. He Mary, was the head of NBC, head of MTM, if you know, like Mary Tyler Moore mm-hmm. Productions. He was Mary, Mary, Mary Tyler, Mary Tyler Moore. Moore. Yeah. yeah, he died. And then Alice Drummond, who was a character actor, she played the librarian in Ghostbusters. And she's been in everything. everything. And she's one of those faces that, regardless, and, and, and unlike a lot of guys where you'd be able to, you know, the guy with the nose, or what, you, yeah. you would be hard-pressed to describe her. Yeah, yeah, but you yeah. would know her instantly yeah. if you She's saw one her. of the more of that movie helper we talk about mm-hmm. that just sweetens it, just makes it all really good. Right on. Um, moving on to stuff. And these... oh, oh, there's one more death. What's that? Um, uh, what's his name? Don. Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Don Kalfa. That happened after yep. our podcast. Oh, I forgot movie. about that. Yeah. yeah, man, that blew me away. Yeah. Um, until I thought about it, you know, the more you think about it, you go, well, you know, the guy, an was, guy. he was an yeah. older guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another guy that's just instantly recognizable. And in a ton of shit. In a ton of movies. But yeah, uh, Heather had posted once that, that, that I think it was Heather, or maybe somebody else. I don't know. Somebody said, you know, for all the stuff that he's appeared in, it was nice hearing people talk lovingly most about his character in Return of the Living Dead. Well, you want, and I don't know, maybe you guys do, how much of it, of that character was him? How much of it was like, give him a gun, give him this, give him the classical music, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I just wonder how much of that I know that he's the one who came up with dyeing his hair. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he's great in that. Yeah, he is. Um, And I always remember, because at the time, I was going through mortuary college, and I was always like, (laughs) you're always happy to see someone like that. And then you wait for them to. There's always the scene where someone comes in eating a sandwich sure. into the prep room, eating a sandwich. I uh, arachnophobia. I love this scene. There, guys, literally eating a sandwich, and then something happens, and he he sets the sandwich down on the table 
where the dead guy is. Right. And then he comes back later and he starts to eat it again. And you're just like, ooh. <laughs> uh, all right. So some news. Um, they gave a release date. No one's going to care, but some of our listeners might. Um, July 27th, 2018 is the release of Aquaman. I don't know why it's going to take over a year for post-production on Aquaman. Well, because it's they're probably not underwater. And yeah, so you're it's probably. probably. I'm seeing a lot of photos, though, of that guy in water. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, Amy Schumer was cast in a live-action Barbie movie where she's going to play a Barbie in a world of Barbies who is who isn't doesn't fit the model. Mm-hmm. She's a little heavier or whatever. She's a little has different a body type or whatever. And right. it's about finding her place. So it's the point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no surprise. Well, now they make Barbies. With different body types. Yeah, that's and I think that's great. But here's the thing that... I oh, is it, so I was wondering, is it part of like an extended advertising campaign? Well, I think so. I think it's also a, a way to sort of normalize Bobby, Barbie's ridiculous dimensions. You know, let's make... making Giving people, young girls especially, more of a realistic body image thing. But this won't surprise anyone already... This was announced yesterday. Already, Amy Schumer's taken just a gang of shit on Twitter about how who who do you think you are being Barbie? You're a fat, you know, you're fat. You're this, you're that, your other thing. More of online, more online douchebaggery, basically. But um, see, I think it's I'm, interesting. See, I'm glad I don't have. I don't. Well, I'm glad I don't use my Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's interesting that more of that knee jerk reaction that that has gotten us assholes. into more. <laughs> trouble than we were going to talk about on this podcast americans are assholes yeah that's what yeah. we learned we're, we we're learned. and we're aggressively proud of that about that about you know um i heard patrice o'neill talking about how he was in france in france calling other calling the people there foreigners <laughs> that's it's that's uh. <laughs> anyway um john favreau doing a live action lion king and he's also doing a jungle book too Whatever. Because that was a big, big thing. I don't care. I actually, you know what? I've not read a bad review on Jungle Book. Though. I've not either, but God damn it, I no, want no. new stories. I want new well, stories. Here's an interesting thing, though, that I was thinking earlier today is that, 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 when, uh, I'll, I'll, never mind, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, buzz through the rest of this. Sons of Anarchy spinoff focusing on the Mayans. Mayans, if you're a Sons of Anarchy fan, I guess that's a pretty big deal. A lot of people are talking sure. about Mayans. Um, Netflix has added on offline viewing where you don't have to be connected to a, a, a Wi-Fi that you, you'll literally download movies probably the same way Napster works where there's a, a DRM file that as soon as your subscription ends, it gets deleted from sure. your shit. Um, they also announced, this is weird, a Christmas special based on Sense8, the Wachowski thing that they've been doing. Um, and they've also announced a second season. They just announced Netflix also just announced a second season for Luke Cage. That was just today. Uh-huh. Uh Don Dan Trachtenberg, who did Ten Cloverfield Lane, is doing a Houdini movie. Okay. Um, that I personally I think that's going to hinge solely on casting. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of Houdini movies made. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Adrian Brody just did one recently. Yeah, he did one not too long ago, and uh, I. I can't remember. A TV guy did one back in the seventies. Um, eh, okay. Okay. Cool. Heather's being really quiet over there. She doesn't give a shit. I don't give a shit about any of this. 
Kevin Smith no longer knew in Buckaroo Banzai because it turns out the people that he was working with didn't have the rights. Aha. That's what happens yeah. when a bunch of stoners get together. <laughs> What'd you say, Heather? I was saying, uh, yes. Yeah. That is correct. That's horrible. Uh, Jamie Foxx and, and the brother of Marvin Gaye are producing a Marvin Gaye limited series bio, which I think is great because Gaye was a not only a, um iconic uh, singer, but also an activist and, sure. and kind of a hell on wheels. That yeah. guy. Um, Amazon doing Sigmund in the rebooting Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. Stop it. Do it. What if it's adorable? I know. What if it is adorable? They'll probably have. Yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Let it be. A, I, you know, I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I have the reputation of hate and everything. Um, and then why final... is that a hard line for you, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Langley's line in the sand. Exactly. It's... It's more of the it's more of the same. It's like don't remake, don't remake. You know what? More good on them. Good <laughs> on them. Good on I them. I think people demand great content now and and so they just go like like what do we have in the toy chest? Yeah, what do we already own that we don't have to pay sure. for again? And what has a built-in audience with at the very least name recognition it i agree with you it doesn't warrant a complete it's like, reboot it's like pete's dragon that came out last year i hear people say it can, oh it's a good movie I'm like, i don't care yeah yeah more cg nonsense yeah especially it, you know. say pete's dragon was very good i didn't see it you didn't like the first piece no i didn't like the first pete's dragon it's from that disney era when they had i call it sketchy drawing i didn't like it yeah. the jungle book <laughs> fell in that same uh fox really? and the hound yeah wow yeah. i mean I could, that that time period i could see you bitching about something like let's say bed knobs and broomsticks or yeah. as Kev- kevin smith called it witches versus nazis i love bed knobs and yeah. broomsticks funny funnily enough uh kevin smith on fat man and batman was talking about Bedknobs and Brewsticks, and he was like, that's a great film. I'd, I'd love if someone remade that. The next day, there were articles all over comic things. Kevin like, Smith, Kevin remake. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta remake myself and Brewsticks. Pretty funny. And then finally, there, there, there's talk um, about a standalone Obi-Wan Kenobi film with Ewan McGregor. It's Star Wars, so I don't care, but I know a lot of people are very excited about that. And I think if anyone deserves a film, if you're gonna, since you're giving films out to every fucking swinging dick in right. that Star Wars universe. You might as well give one to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because McGregor's... I tell you, the... the I tra- want to see the bartender story from the cantina. <laughs> I want to know what happened. Have you seen this? I want to know all about the bounty hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's talk they're doing this Boba Fett standalone. So. I, I, I want a character in the Star Wars universe that has nothing to do with... Do you know what I want to see? Star Wars. Star Wars... Through the Star Wars filter, you drop Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Okay. So you you take like a couple of that's C three PO and R two. Yeah. 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 yeah you're kind of right. Yeah. Yeah. I sit, done. I sit correct. Done. <laughs> <laughs> done. Drops the mic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, some trailers dropped uh, this week that were pretty important. Number one, Hideo Kojima's. Uh, Kojima, they, they dropped a trailer for Death Standing with Mads Mikkelsen and Guillermo del Toro. Um, it's a it's a cinematic for this new game that's coming right. out, and it looks it looks awesome. Yeah, it looks really cool. I like it's almost like what they did with Beowulf, sort of amped up. Right, right, by right. A couple of years. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that looked cool. Right? Uh, Mummy teaser. It's 15 seconds long. I haven't seen that. It's 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 bombast. It's stuff exploding and Tom Cruise running and looking earnest and that kind okay. of thing. Um, it does look good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It looks competently made. But everything does. A now. female mummy, and she looks. She's very much of this cut from the same cloth that the Enchantress was in Suicide Squad. Okay. So there's that. Um, I'm trying to think of the order I want to do these. Uh, it's a trailer for a movie called Spectral, which is sort of a almost like a real Ghostbusters, where ghosts have now come on gone on the attack Mm. and they're passing through people and and robbing them of their spirit and killing them and it's like an armed sort of team that tries to it looked good it it didn't i don't want to say it looked good it looked okay it looked like something that bears further viewing okay and then the last three um a horrific trailer that just i do not know what they were thinking and that's this trailer this mini trailer for cars three see and i and i think i think I, that's the that's the first thing that I've seen from those folks that I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But you know exactly where it's going to go. Yeah, you know exactly where it's going to go. I, I think the trailer is essentially a car race, and you see this, whatever the character's McQueen character. Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen. Um, crash. And it's not like him bonking into the sidewall. It's a crash. Yeah. And, and you just think... Well, that's it. And then it's all, after this moment, everything changes. And yeah. it's just like, how depressing is this? You've spent two movies getting me to love this guy? And to what? To break his back? <laughs> you know? did, I didn't see the second movie. Yeah, no um, one did. I liked the first one. Yeah. yeah. It was Doc Hollywood. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what this is going to be. I think it's going to be more of the same. It'll yeah. be McQueen and the mentor character. Where Paul Newman was in the first one. Yeah, um, and the last two Maybe have to his do with grill would be a big mustache. Nah. <laughs> uh, um, have to do with James Gunn, and the first is the Belko experiment. I love that film. Did you see it? I saw it at TIFF. Yes, which, uh, which looks great. Not a new idea, kind of. I mean, it's 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 all that stuff. It's a. Uh, in a world where there is only tasteful genre being made with uh, young actors who look like they work at Urban Outfitters and very little horror, yeah. this entire film is head explosions for 90 minutes. Yeah. It reminds me of... And uh, I say God bless to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of um, uh, Battle Royale in the corporate world. Right. It reminds me of Manuel Pinero's The Method. It reminds me of Stuart Hazeldine's exam. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of Cube in a weird way. Sure. Um, but I agree with you. Any opportunity, I, I question how it's going to be received. I fear it's going to be received as, fuck yeah, that's what my company needs, a de- battle royale. Um, well, it's, it's Trump's America. I so think you never, I, all bets are off. I think it's going to be received as, that's a battle royale ripoff. I hope it's not. It's not like Battle Royale at all. I, it's not good. Good, okay. good, 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 good. It just, if, it just feels, God, it feels like a, an awesome made-for-TV movie that you would watch like in 1993 or 94. Cool. I love the cast. Yeah. And everything about it looked really good. And it's just, it's just relentless in its, viol- in its violence and, again, in, in its head explosions. Gotta love it. 
And I think and I think by, Battle Royale has a certain sort of like a slickness to it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and other commentary. There's just this is just about dog eat dog, yo. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. It's Especially, about I'm excited. Murder, murder people. I'm excited about Heather's use of the word yo. Yo, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then finally, Guardians of the Galaxy two. Um, I'm always excited. I like the first one. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it, you know, I, I really enjoyed the first one, which was odd because it's not my kind of movie. And uh, I same here because I was going, oh, this is fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, and I went, let me go buy a ticket to this, and I go, this is, why is this so wonderful? Yeah, I can't, I can't put my finger on it either. For me, it's, a big, it's very funny. It's it's very funny, and for me, a big part of it is the music. Yeah, yeah, it's, he, he he chose the right things and. And and this trailer actually doesn't have too many more shots than the teaser trailer originally did, mm-hmm. but the inclusion of Fox on the Run just made it. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, it surprises me. I, I noticed that you went on Facebook. You posted a link yeah. to the trailer. And you're like, you know, like I'm in, and that really surprises me. It surprised me because when I look at that trailer, I just see. This was filmed in a big, giant green room it is. in Culver City. It is. And so the first one. I know, but there's so much CG in there. It almost reminded... I started to get... Um, uh, it harkens back to this Valerian in the city of Lost Worlds or whatever. Right. Fifth element kind of death. Yeah. That um, uh, I honestly thought, as I was watching, I go, oh, Langley's going to hate this. Yeah, but so, I mean... I was I, wrong. I think Langley you know has come to terms with there are some movies that have to be made that yeah, way yeah there's no way that that film could ever no have been and made. Langley speaks in the third person I also like as well right right yeah <laughs> so yeah. you're so you're accepting of of the of of digital visual effects I've always been accepting of digital visual you see now I'm doing digital visual effects I think they're overused and they're used a large m- amount of the time where they don't need to be. I think that they're, they're, um, somebody said, here's the new toy and let's play mm-hmm. with it all the time. And yeah. why I'm excited about Valerian is because you can see there's so much, uh, practical effects going on mixed in there. In there. Yeah. yeah. But son's always done that. I mean, look at, look at fifth element. Right. All right. So what about book, uh, films, recommendations, things we've been watching? Who wants to go first? Um, I highly recommend, and there have been there have been documentaries that have come out since, uh, but I highly recommend checking out the documentary. Um, two, one is um, I I don't know Jack was uh, about the the life of Jack Nance, who was one of David Lynch's regular <coughs> actors. A lot of people knew him from his regular role on Twin Peaks, probably the most normal character he ever played, um, Pete Martell. Um, and I also highly recommend um, a documentary that's called, um, I think it's called Pretty as a Picture. Yeah, that's Pretty the David Lynch thing. Yeah, it's a documentary about David Lynch at, at, at that, up to that point. And it deals a lot with his art. 97. Um, yeah, it deals a lot with his paintings and stuff. And, and, and you get to talk to the kids, including Jen. Oh, cool. Uh, talking about, you know, what's it like having a dad who takes dead animals and epoxies them to a canvas <laughs> and lets ants eat them and that that's his art you know yeah, yeah, project yeah. that is art yeah heck yeah and it's changing um anything else 
No. Okay. Heather, anything you recommend? All right. So I was I was in the land of Helsinki. Yes. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. We can we can talk about that on the next show. We can okay. go through the, the night vision show. But a movie I saw there, which I was a little taken aback by that I liked, was called it's and it hasn't played America, but everybody should keep their eyeballs out. It's nineteen seventy four. It's by uh Victor uh, um Dryery. Um and it's an it's a found footage film about possession shot on eight millimeter from Mexico. Oh cool. And I think it's a very fun pop movie to watch. And I, I love the way the characters are put together, and I like those sort of scares, because the folks know me in the type of movies I like. I also am a fan of, you know, I do love Paranormal Activity. I do sort of like the Blumhouse movies. I do like the pop horror, because it's fun to watch. And for me, part of horror, other than being, you know, this... this this dreadful transgressive destroying of your of your brain movie there's also of course my love of river monsters but then there's my love of these kind of supernatural fun films so i, I recommend it if it's playing a film fest uh, near you it's almost something like I, I i felt the way the first time i watched wreck mm. and i go well this is sort of the possession version of it and it's kind of shot like like the vhs virals or the abc's of death and it has a very accessible uh, aesthetic so for that i would say i'm a i'm a fan and while dry and for um are, are we recommending any of our our books sure yet? yes please, please all right so when i go on my long journeys I like to get a book on tape, and I will call it tape, even though it's downloading it from Audible. I was listening to Cormac McCarthy's The Road, yes. and I would suggest that if you're doing a road trip, especially with other people in the car, and including children, I would suggest listening to The Road and seeing how, like, will you listen to the entire thing, or at some point would you going to shut it off? Because I was going to shut it off at some point, because it's like, I can't listen to this anymore it is one of the most depressing bleak things i've 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 ever i've ever had the privilege of 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 experiencing so i recommend the road i recommend it as a as a prank for your loved ones if you're going on that long trip to disney world if you want to like kill the mood about someone wrestling, do I have the strength that this gun doesn't work to crush this kid's head in with a rock yeah that's yeah. it's uh as i said to you when uh, a few days ago it's mm-hmm. so blows me away that this was one of the books picked for oprah's book club right um because i saw it and i go well, oprah's book club right and so i heard of you know i read a few cormac mccarthy's and reading the book the book is depressing the mm-hmm. film is depressing but the book is so much more depressing no <laughs> not touch how depressing the book is yeah yeah because they don't really convey that that they sort of touch on it towards the end, but throughout the book, he's like every step of the way, he's actively thinking: Is this when I kill my son? Is this when I kill my son? Uh-huh. Is this when I kill my son? And um, just horrible. Repe- repeated themes of how black and ashen the world is, how nothing's yeah. there, and and a very matter matter of fact um, approach as well, because it's never complaining; it's just an observation right. of fate. Of current status, and I think that's what what makes it so grating mm-hmm. in a sense. Like this is what I see. This is how yeah, it is. A lot of this. This is how hungry we are. This is how we're starving. This and is how scared we are. Themes that we that people 
seem to be embracing with like Walking Dead about the real monsters are are other people sure. and, and that kind of thing. All right, cool. Anything else? That it? I think I think that's it. And again, okay. if you want to talk about night visions next week, we could totally do that. Yeah, let's do that. Totally. Um, me, I'm continuing on. I'm I'm zeroing it out on this. A couple of titles: Friends of Eddie Coil, highly recommended on Criterion. Yeah, love it. Um, Crazy Heart, not so recommended with Jeff Bridges. Um, Plague Dogs, which I highly recommend, but again, make it a good double feature with The Road. <laughs> Plague Dogs <laughs> is really depressing. Um, Prince of Persia, which don't ask me even why I put that on. Um, I, the I Spit on Your Grave remake, which I wanted to hate, and I really did hate the first reel of it. But like the original, there's this dark water you've got to get through to get to the revenge stuff. Sure. Um, this remake, though, the revenge stuff is awesome. <laughs> that last half hour of I Spit on Your Grave is awesome. Um, and then finally, we we ventured out. I went ventured outside of my room, and um, we went and saw Doctor Strange. Yeah, which begins quite good, and then halfway, about halfway through, it just becomes another Marvel film. There's a lot of kicky, punchy stuff. Um, I had been talking on Facebook about how I would really have liked to have seen it more akin to something like Razor's Edge or Lost Horizon, mm-hmm. culminating in him taking on the mantle of being Doctor Strange. But at this point, it's eleventh, the eleventh or twelfth Marvel film. Um, they're 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 beyond all that. They just want like give us a, give us a bare origin and let's get to the light show and let's shit blowing. Let's get to the part where he can plug him into the other story. Exactly, and that's what they've done because there's a post credit sequence where they seem to be dropping him in the middle of this new Thor movie. But it's it's pretty. It's got a lot of really cool visuals, you know. Um, sure. Uh, is he as strange? What's that? How is he as Cumberbatch as strange? Oh, he's great as Doctor Strange. And Tilda Swinton, no surprise there, is um, is is really good as the Ancient One. The thing that's really odd is um, I was just reading an article, an interview with her, that um, she she's bald in the film, right? And there are these wicked scars all over the back of her head and all like all over the top of her dome, you know, uh-huh. um, that is never mentioned and never called to. And she was saying how that was something that she did that she because she felt like there must have been trials that this person went sure. through, and not all of them go well. Um, but I thought that was really cool, and it would and it would necessitate an actress like Swinton uh-huh. to be able to go, let's just bring that to the table and leave it, set it there, but never call attention to right. it. And um, it makes it all the, all the better. Uh, as far as books go, I'm going to recommend Krista Faust's book, Control Freak. It's a mystery, murder mystery kind of a thing, taking place in the world of professional dominatrixes and SNL. Okay. What's that? Oh man, and and in S and M and fetish clubs, um, written by Chris Faust. Uh, she's one of the three Furies. They call themselves. It's her, Poppy Z. Bright, and Caitlin Kiernan. Mm-hmm. Um, Krista used to be married to David J. Scow for, for a while there. Um, Krista's a great writer. She's doing Peepland now in comic form, and she did. Um, She's, she was doing novelizations of movies. She did Snakes on a Plane, of all things. But she's a great writer, and she's an ex-pro-dom. So, um, it speaks... So she's, so she's able to... She knows what she's talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, it's a, and it's, a, it's a solid book. And Krista's someone... If you go online and look up Krista Faust Cutman, there's an audio reading of one of her short stories um, that's really... 
Yeah, it's great. It's just great. Yeah, yeah. So we have her on. Can we have her on? Uh, I can try that. We can try. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. The more talk I think about, about that, fetish cinema, crime cinema, anything she wants to talk about, right? Yeah, I will. I will reach out to her and try to get her on. Uh, if anyone listeners out there know Krista, let her know that we're coming. We're coming for her. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so that's that. That's episode one hundred and one. Cool. I think we're running out of steam. David Lynch, one hundred and one. David Lynch done. Next week we'll be back, and I don't know what we're doing. Hopefully we'll have Chris. Don't know. Maybe or no, we're having. Um, I'm hoping. Otto. We're hoping we're having a guy coming on that is cuts trailers for a living. Cuts trailers for a living and talks to us about the wonderful world of making trailers and why they all look the same now. And then we'll also uh, get a report back from Heather on Helsinki, because which I completely spaced on. I apologize for that. Uh, all right. So for the Bonus Material Podcast, we'll see you next week. I'm Tom Carnell. I'm Heather Buckley. And I'm Langley West. Stay scared.